We're very pleased today to have Nikki Lacey back with us uh, to talk to us. And Nikki uh, is a school professor of law, gender and social policy at the LSE. Um, and before she went back to the LSE, she was here for a number of years here in this college at All Souls and she was part of the Centre for Criminology. Um, so we're very pleased to see her. Um, Today, I have this long list that the administrator always sends me, and it's incredibly long for Nikki. It tells us all about the various things she's done. Um, a senior research fellow previously at All Souls, a professor of criminal law and legal theory here at the University of Oxford. Um, she's held a number of visiting appointments, most recently at Harvard Law School. She's an honorary fellow of New College Oxford and of University College Oxford, fellow of the British Academy. Um, and... Uh, in 2017 was awarded a CBE for services to law, justice and gender politics. So very impressive. Um, and today Nikki will be talking to us about her ongoing work um, about democracy and the title of her paper is Historicizing American Exceptionalism in Crime, Punishment and Inequality. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be back here among valued friends and former colleagues and all of you students, some of my former LSE students as well, which is lovely to see. Um, this seminar has been a, a source of pleasure and stimulation to me for m most of my career, so it's always a very special thing to be asked to contribute to it, and I shall try not to lower the standard, the average <laughs> standard, too badly. Um, I've actually, we, Mary and I between us decided that we were going to keep things low stress and not struggle with the PowerPoint, but I've got a very short handout which is really just a few sort of data and table slides to give a little bit of background to, as it were, what we're trying to explain in this paper. And I should say this paper is part of a joint project with David Soskis, who's a political scientist, political economist comparativist and the particular sort of background to this paper is that um, it's, it was written for a conference that we organised with two colleagues uh, Leo Chiliotis and Sappho Zanarkis uh, the conference in general is looking at the relationship or the question of what if any relationship there is between crime punishment and inequality and we are focusing on America, which we've worked on in the past. And I will sort of summarise some of our past work very briefly as part of this paper. Um, the paper is probably a bit long, so please excuse me if I'm uh, there's a bit of crashing gears while I do some impromptu cuts. Um, so, by any standards, the US presents itself as a really fascinating case study in any effort to understand the complex and contested links between crime, punishment and inequality. We know that societies with high levels of inequality tend also to exhibit both high levels of crime and particularly violent crime and punishment. But actually, most of the exemplary cases feature either an insecure or pretty recent democratic political system uh, and the late or incomplete embedding of an advanced capitalist economic system. Amid long-standing democracies with advanced capitalist economies, the US really does stand out in terms of a number of key features. Inequality is as measured by a number of economic standards, notably the Gini coefficient, levels of serious violent crime, imprisonment rates, rates of penal surveillance and post-conviction disqualifications. These are very well known to everybody in the room. 
So even among the more unequal, more criminogenic, more punitive liberal market economies of the advanced democracies, the US occupies the unenviable position of being an outlier in all the wrong ways. Why should that be so? Now, in our previous work, David and I have argued that the exceptional rise in violent crime and punishment in the US from the mid-70s to the early 1990s could be explained by the interaction of four political economic variables. Technological (coughs) regime change, in other words, the collapse of Fordism, varieties of capitalism, and varieties of welfare state. Um, The US obviously is a liberal market economy and a liberal welfare state in Esping Anderson's typology. Type of political system. Uh, The US is a competitive, majoritarian rather than negotiated proportional representation system. But critically and specifically, we focused in our work on another unusual feature of the U.S. political system, and that is that the U.S. is a radical outlier in the degree of local democracy, with policies on residential zoning, public education, policing, prosecution, justice, transport, you name it, all decided at local level. So... What's on the handout, and it's, you, know, you don't need to really look at it, but essentially there's an updated version of the abstract, and then there are a couple of charts that really look at what we're trying to explain here, the, the, the imprisonment and, and homicide rates, and you can see, unfortunately, because I didn't have a colour printer, you can't really see the differences between the other countries, but you can see that the US has been on a sort of journey of its own. Um, And then over LEAF, we've got residential segregation, imprisonment rate, homicide rate, literacy score at the bottom end, child poverty. The US is sort of an outlier in all of these ways. And then at the bottom, I've just uh, basically compared the US and England and Wales in terms of the locus of policy making and decision making in fields that are either part of criminal justice or cognate to things that might affect dispositions to punish or to offend and so on. So our very broad argument has been that violent crime, for example, uh, came from the poverty, lack of welfare, limited education and lack of effective policing, particularly in the traps to which zoning policies segregated the disadvantaged losers from the collapse of Fordism. Policies which favoured medium voters, local voters, by bolstering house prices and reducing property taxation. These same dynamics shaped, we argued, as a paper published in Punishment and Society four years ago, shaped a a distinctive toxic politics of punishment, particularly from the 1970s on. And in particular, electorally driven patterns of residential segregation, we argued, reinforced and aggravated the radical racial inequality, which is, of course, a further and striking feature of American history. Since we did that work, there's been quite a lot further research across a number of disciplines that I think has has bolstered the evidential case for that broad thesis. So the tendency of American political fragmentation to unleash what we might call Gersel, the historian calls, sort of centrifugal forces, polarising forces, has been uh, very central to uh, recent US history. 
historical scholarship. And the impact of local democracy and locally based criminal justice institutions on the development of criminal justice policy has been confirmed in a, a very broad range of criminological work. Recent studies have also confirmed the decisive impact of electoral cycles on both judicial and prosecutorial decision-making, finding that under conditions prevailing from the 1970s on, local electoral dynamics have fed an upward trajectory of punitiveness. Indeed, in recent work, John Pfaff, who's done some pretty meticulous empirical uh, research on this, has gone so far as to claim that the single most important reform needed to make further progress in dismantling American mass imprisonment would be a move away from the election of prosecutors. So as a result, we're gradually sort of accumulating a bit of a better understanding of the mechanisms through which these extraordinary outcomes captured very crudely in these tables and figures uh, in crime, punishment and inequality are being produced and maintained. And some theses are emerging that <coughs> promise to perhaps explain how the distinctive American political, economic and social structure has sustained those outcomes <coughs> over time. But of course, the institutions which shape these outcomes today are the products of very long historical processes. And a historical focus is very important in developing the argument that America's outlier position among contemporary advanced democracies is shaped by its distinctively institutionalised political system. So in this paper, we're focusing on that history and we're asking three questions which are implied by our past work but not really covered by it. First, we confront a very fundamental question, which is why do such distinctive patterns of local democracy arise in America? And in light of the over-representation of African Americans in the criminal justice system today, we're particularly interested in how, if at all, that political structure is tied up with the distinctive American history and politics of race. Second, we ask what, if any, this political economic history implied about the development of specifically criminal justice institutions. And third, we go on to ask why the burden of violent crime and punishment continue to fall so disproportionately on African Americans, but now we also have to think about Hispanics. So, um, first of all, um, let's look at political economy, more or less. So most of the modern institutional structures of advanced economies which industrialised in the 19th century derive from the ways in which those nations were organised before and during industrialisation and how governments, given those political economic preconditions, shaped the institutions which they found necessary for the formulation of an industrial economy. Economic historians distinguish between three or four industrial revolutions corresponding to what they call different technology regimes. The original industrial revolution, which was based on iron and steam, gave way in the middle of the 19th, uh, 19th century to the much more sophisticated so-called scientific revolution, which was based on electricity and produced very large, complex corporations. That then subsequently morphed into Fordism, much more familiar to us, and when Fordism collapsed in the 1970s and 1980s with deindustrialization, advanced economies painfully and often conflictually began to absorb the information revolution based on information and communications technologies. 
And of course, we're still in the midst of that change. Now, the scientific revolution, as distinct from the original industrial revolution, required a huge range of infrastructural rules and institutions. And in the UK, as in all other industrialising countries apart from the US, in the context of the public goods that were needed to to underpin ever more sophisticated industrialisation, the second half of the 19th century saw consolidation of power by national governments. This consolidation tended to be based on disciplined national parties and the creation of effective ministries so as to foster control and counter what in every country were quite conservative forces of reaction against, as it were, public spending and redistribution to produce the public goods that were needed for industrialisation. A particularly important focus for that kind of opposition was compulsory education, which existing elites would have to pay for and which would enable agricultural workers, whose labour was, of course, crucial to the power of those elites, to leave for industrial jobs with significant implications for the balance not only of the economy but of political and social power. So the newly centralising political systems of most countries crafted rafts of legislation covering things like finance, accounting, transport, labour a wide range of standards, security, sanitation and, crucially, education. So the key thing from the point of view of our comparison with the US, this included in the UK the establishment of a national top-down control from Westminster over municipalities to a degree that had not been the case before. By contrast, the US, um, mainly through presidential choices during the long Republican ascendancy from the 1870s on, basically after the Civil War, in cooperation with presidential appointments to Supreme Court, uh, a topical matter and one that has been, we've been here before, uh, went in completely the opposite direction from this country. And it did so in spite of the fact that the Republican ascendancy was just as concerned to industrialise and therefore faced and needed to solve very similar problems about how to create public goods and to foster incentives to sustain them over time. But they confronted this task under very different institutional preconditions. So what are the key features of the US political economic history for that from that point of view. And I'm just really, you know, painting with very broad brushstrokes here. Um, The first thing to note is that the US essentially opted for a two-region solution. The core conservative opposition to industrialisation was in the southern states. And presidents think we're just coming out of the trauma of the Civil War. Presidents saw it as far too costly to remove this opposition, to counter it, because it was very bitter resistance. It was, of course, highly tied up with the race system, a system of racial oppression and access to cheap labour that that implied for southern elites. Um, But moreover, the the Republican presidents began to realise, I suppose, that southern states weren't actually needed for industrialisation. So long as the South accepted common US manufacturing tariffs to protect developing northern industries against European competition, they would be forced to buy northern goods. 
So essentially, very neat, you just keep the south outside the industrialisation project. Um, and the north really had no economic reason to impose proper education on the south. And that, of course, had, in a way, as the punchline of our paper, had terrible long-term effects for, for black Americans. So this settlement, in contrast to the UK, where we managed to neuter the Lords' opposition with reform legislation such as that, as that of 1867 and 1884, the US simply didn't eliminate conservative opposition in the 19th century. Rather, it contained it, roughly speaking, within a region. That's obviously a gross oversimplification, but that's the basic argument. So the second point is that um, education was left to local autonomy. So education, as we saw, was key to industrialisation. Why was it left to localities? Well, here we come to the US Constitution, because, of course, the presidency didn't have any constitutional power to impose universal education. What it saw, however, uh, was that northern cities and counties had their own strong incentives to develop universal elementary and later high school education. And that was because, given uh, flexible labour markets, education was pretty key to income levels as far as local median voters were concerned. And secondly, municipalities needed at least semi-educated workforces to attract the large corporations that were really the engine of industrialisation in America. So actually, the US education system uh, really developed out of local autonomous systems uh, based on democratic choices. And it, this produced, interestingly, but only outside the South, a pretty effective education system. But it's entirely different from the way compulsory education developed in this country. <coughs> now, that also meant um, a broader degree of autonomy for municipalities and counties. The absence of effective federal bureaucracies covering the US implied more generally a role for municipalities in economic development, particularly for large places. In most of the northern states in the 19th century, municipalities were significantly more important administratively even than states. Now, police powers were, of course, given by the Constitution to the states, but de facto, they were passed on in large part to municipalities and counties. And in the historian William Novak's words, in contrast to the modern ideal of the state as a centralised bureaucracy, the prevailing US conception of the well-regulated society emphasised local control and autonomy. This reflected the historical origins in much of the northern US of government being based in cities. And as Richard Bensel has argued... Key to the dynamics favouring a de facto grant of major autonomy to big cities in the interests of industrial development was that the Supreme Court could impose the interstate commerce clause suitably interpreted by the carefully chosen justices so that local areas and indeed big cities didn't put up local tariffs and controls on competition. So you're sort of creating a national economy, industrialising economy, but through all these decentralised mechanisms. Therefore, and this was really critical for American industrialisation, big cities really had to attract large corporations who could bring in wealth and employment 
by providing labour forces who are educated and preferably for the uh, corporations non-unionised, hence very low levels of unionisation in the US over time. Cities further took on the role of educating the necessary migrant inflows in the 19th century and guaranteeing to the corporations that unionisation and strikes would be controlled by the city in exchange for migrant votes. So it's quite a complex system, and I'm obviously massively oversimplifying it, but that's, those are the key things. Now, given what I've said so far, and this is the next sort of headline point, it's not all that surprising that an enormous amount of autonomy was given to big corporations because they were really largely the drivers of what was happening along with the cities. In Europe, nation-states played a key role in developing the infrastructure necessary for industrialisation. In the US, the federal government simply lacked the institutional and legal capacity to do that, um, and at least until uh, at least until the mid nineteenth uh, mid twentieth century, really, um, as Gersel argues, the constitutional constitution implied that national power had to be exercised by subterfuge, via strategies like exemption from constitutional restraint, surrogate delegation of responsibility, or contracting out of what in other systems would have been public responsibilities core governmental functions, creating in effect a kind of hybrid public-private governance structure. So no wonder that the US had difficulty in crafting, let alone enforcing, centralised policies of redistribution or capacity building able to tackle radical levels of inequality which tend to come alongside this kind of rapid capitalist development. Bensel in particular has argued that the Supreme Court, loaded with judicial appointments uh, from the, uh, by the Republicans from the highly successful railroad operations, who are of course a big driver of industrialisation, the Supreme Court understood the possibility of great, the great economies of scale and scope from giant corporation, corporations if they had the freedom to dominate markets. This led to very sophisticated court interpretations of the Clayton and Sherman anti-monopoly legislation, with the president using breakup powers only when companies failed to develop the, the desired economies of scale and scope. In effect, what Bensel argues is that the Republican ascendancy presidency used the Supreme Court to deploy the interstate commerce clause to prevent protectionist behaviour by states or cities and to take away powers from all levels to regulate industrial relations. This meant that cities had to compete to get the giant corporations in order to develop and grow and mould labour markets to their requirements. And that brings me to the final headline, really, of this part of the paper, which is this, the so-called, what political scientists call the sort of deal that was done in cities. Um, at this time of American history, as is well known, um, cities tended to be run by sort of party bosses. Um, and the incentive, incentive structure for those party bosses in big cities was very much to, uh, up till the 1920s to encourage and, and absorb immigration in order to provide labour. Um, the city bosses wanted large companies to bring prosperity, raising the price of property and creating employment. 
as the as immigrants moved in, they either had political leadership or organisation uh, from coming with them, or they joined in already partially established migrant groups. This is beautifully documented, by the way, if anybody's interested in Desmond King's book, Making Americans. And implicit bargains were struck between their leaders and city bosses within the so-called Tammany Hall system. Um, significantly, so they were basically trading jobs for votes. That's really what was going on. Significantly, however, and this again is the sort of punchline of our paper really, is that this deal was not available in the same way for African Americans who migrated north from 19, particularly from 1916 through to 1970 uh, to fill the manufacturing demand for labour when European migration slowed. I'll come back to that. Now, of course, given that those corporations are making big investments and were terribly central to the whole project, they uh, had a lot of power and they wanted to feel protected by the political system. So uh, the ability to invest in politicians was pretty important to them. From this perspective, we think a sort of reasonable hypothesis would be that British companies who couldn't invest in politicians, because actually individual politicians here have never had very much power, uh, to, were, were less prepared to make massive long-term investments, whereas these huge US corporations, because they you know, had quite a lot of political clout, did. And, of course, cities, given their major role in policy-making, wanted protection from the broader federal uh, and political, uh, federal and state political systems. So everything was stacking up in favour of local power. And that also applied, I won't go into this, to the party system, which remained very undisciplined. And although it was within a national framework, essentially parties were run at the local level. So to sum up that part of the paper, uh, the US political economic system was, from way back, fundamentally different from the political systems of the UK and of other northern European countries. Negatively, in terms of the absence of highly disciplined political parties driving national policy. Positively, in terms of the power vested in localities and corporations as drivers of economic development. So while those differences are decisively shaped by the history and politics of race, notably, of course, by the legacy of the Civil War and of slavery, which shaped the political and cultural world of the South, and fostered this regionally bifurcated equilibrium. Local autonomy in the US wasn't driven by race in a simple way. It's very deeply driven by race, but it's kind of indirectly driven, I think, if you're looking at it historically. Because race was sort of mediated by political economy and vice versa, in that it was the racial policies of the politics of the South which pushed industrialization north, and it was the ability to industrialise without the South which kept the Southern system of racial oppression in place. So it's a, it is an intimate link with race, but it's a slightly more uh, complex one than it perhaps sometimes uh, appears. Now, next part of the paper really deals with um, the question of how uh, this maps on to the development, if at all, of criminal justice institutions. Um, and I, I'm, I'm 
pretty tentative about this paper because I'm not really an Americanist, I'm not really a historian, so there are doubtless lots of people in the room who know more about bits of this paper than David and I do. But uh, I'm going to have a go at, uh, at sketching out the ways in which I think the development of the American criminal justice system is similar in very cognate ways to that picture I've just given you of the political economy. So in the 19th century in Europe, um, many country, most countries saw a sort of gradual process of state building, which in a lot of literature you know, evokes Weber kind of standardly. It's all about modernization through centralization, professionalization, standardization through the construction of governmental bureaucracies. That's the sort of picture of modernization. And by that sort of template... In the US, that process of state building, in a sense, just remained incomplete. I mean, that's, as it were, to judge the US by the European standard, but but it's very, very different. Um, And it, it, as we've seen, embedded an exceptional amount of power at the local level. So how did that affect criminal justice? Now, at first sight, actually, I think the development of criminal justice institutions in the US from the colonial era right up to the 20th century looks quite similar to England, what happened in England and Wales. In both countries, if you go back to you know, the 18th or very early 19th century, you have a lot of local action. You know, uh, there's a, a significant local and lay element to the delivery of criminal justice, even of, of a sort of key uh, decision-making in this area. Um, you have local officials, uh, you have a, a enforcement in the context of a very dense normative system of social control, rooted in variously churches, families, landowning structures, and the disciplinary power over particularly agricultural and domestic workers, which these structures entailed. In America, following the revolution and the establishment of the Republic in 1789, the constitutional settlement was interpreted as mandating only very limited federal uh, criminalising powers, as we know. Scholars actually differ a bit on how determinate the original constitution itself was on this point, uh, with Novak in particular emphasising that the early Republican conception of government as existing to assure the public welfare embodied a certain kind of welfareism which actually could have led in quite a different trajectory, in, in, in quite a different direction. Uh, one, but that his argument is that that was basically undermined ultimately by the move towards a more sort of rights-based legalistic conception of government after the Civil War. But the fact is that neither in the early decades of the public, nor Republic, nor in the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War, was there a coalition with either the interest or the capacity to shape that original allocation of police powers to states in such a way as to facilitate the development of central government institutions of the kind that were emerging in Europe. Nonetheless, both countries saw developments which sort of, in a way, conformed to a standard picture of modernisation. The emergence of police and a prison conceived as a humane and rationally organised institution, uh, a more organised system and hierarchy of courts assisted in part by a more organised and numerous legal profession. Um, But beneath this apparent uh, uh, similarity, I think there were some quite important differences. And in this section, I'm going to leave aside 
capital punishment, which is usually the sort of go-to difference historically uh, with a, with, between America and, and Europe on criminal justice, to concentrate on three other areas in which I think the differences are, uh, are quite clearly related to the differences in political economy that I've already described. These are the development of the police, the arrangements for decisions on and conduct of prosecutions, and the role of popular justice. First, the police. So in both countries, the institution of a public police force was a pretty controversial matter, um, evoking, as it did, sort of worries about centralised state power, which were associated, albeit in somewhat different ways, with tyrannical government. Um, in England, the creation of the Metropolitan Police was premised famously on the idea of a, of a citizen but a citizen in uniform. You know, it was a di- meant to be a, as a disciplined professional force. Now, whether or not the early force uh, entirely conformed to this model, the gradual expansion and development towards a nationwide police force sort of conformed to the idea of an independent force seen as a professional rather than a political organisation. Now, the structure of the American policy obviously impl- implied that the emergence of policing would be decentralised And although the development of police forces in the middle of the 19th century at both state and city levels was often inspired by and actually invoked the Peel model, what emerged was something different. Uh, Forces which were staffed not by men joining an emerging profession, as it were, uh, but rather men who were recruited by local officials, who didn't enjoy any job security because their positions might be swept away by the next electoral context at city, county or, or state level, who mostly didn't wear uniforms, which identified them as public servants. The American police were, and I'm being tendentious here, but I think they were in effect an arm of local government, a tool of local political interests, vulnerable to the sway of political power and to the temptation of various forms of corruption. Probably the most spectacular, well-known example of this is the New York Police Department during the era of local machine politics, with policing in significant part funded by informal systems of charging for licences, exemptions and services, and the police in the service the local politicians, in effect part of the Tammany Hall patronage system. Despite efforts to further professionalise the police throughout the latter part of the 19th century, these important institutional differences persisted well into the 20th, albeit subject to the local variations, which are a key feature of the US case. Even amid the reforms of the progressive era of the early 20th century, local political control rather than professional autonomy was the dominant characteristic of policing. What about prosecution? At the start of the 19th century, prosecution in both both countries was in lay hands, initiated by private citizens with the assistance of local lay officials such as justices, constables and sheriffs, mediated by the deliberations of grand juries and sometimes facilitated by the existence of private arrangements such as prosecution associations. In England and Wales, the grand jury declined and the gradual development of a nationwide police force transferred much of the responsibility for prosecutions to the police, with more serious cases handled by ordinary lawyers engaged by the police or, in the case of private prosecutions, the victim. 
In the US, however, there was a key institutional innovation which was to be hugely consequential for the development of criminal justice over the next 150 years. This was the invention in the early decades of the 19th century of the public prosecutor. A public official, like prosecutors in North European systems, but locally based, as in England and Wales. In the years after the revolution, most states provided for the appointment of prosecutors by judges, governors or legislators. But concerns gradually emerged about the vulnerability of appointed prosecutors to the sway of political patronage. And between 1832 and 1861, almost three quarters of states moved to a system of elected rather than appointed prosecutors. The aim, kind of ironically, given what we know about the behaviour of prosecutors today, was to guarantee their political independence. But as a result of the extraordinarily dense system of electoral democracy which the US political economy had spawned, they were, of course, elected at local level. So even more directly than the police, they, in a sense, became part of the state and local political systems, subject to the sway of electoral pressures at the local level and contrary to the intentions of the reformers, very much subject to political influence broadly conceived. Not party political influence, of course, but the influence of uh, politics at the local level. With what's arguably the single most important filter for criminalisation exposed to the power of popular opinion in such a disaggregated way, the potential, any potential capacity to shape a sort of national criminal justice policy is really quite seriously undermined. Even, indeed, to do so at state level was somewhat compromised. And that really brings me to the question of lay or popular justice. Um, so another difference, I think, between 19th century developments in England and uh, in the United States lies in the degree to which social control continued to be exerted by private or popular justice. Now, of course, it's important not to exaggerate this. Uh, legal historians, criminal justice historians have shown that even in the relatively centralised British system, uh, as it was by the end of the 19th century, practices of local shaming, such as so-called rough music, persisted, particularly in rural areas, right up to the 20th century. And of course, internalised norms and a range of private institutions uh, remain in all countries probably much more important to social ordering than the criminal justice system, uh, which is inevitably partial and patchy in its effects and quite often counterproductive too. Um, petty juries, what we call here now just the jury, of course also remain central features of both systems. Nonetheless, I think there's strong evidence that a continued reliance on and indeed attachment to the idea of popular sovereignty in the delivery of criminal justice remained distinctively high in the US with significant implications for a sort of incomplete process of modernising the criminal justice system. So... Arguably, the, the sway of public-private hybrid roles, such as elected local justices, sheriffs and constables, along with the slow and still, at the end of the 19th century, 
incomplete professionalization of the police in America itself implied a large element of lay justice at the heart of even state criminal justice, as indeed did the continued role of lay decision makers, although of course that was true here as well. But a range of other accepted practices in the US don't really find a clear parallel in this country. With weak policing in many parts of the country, private militias remained an important residual tool of de facto public control throughout the 19th century, implying state and local government authorities' reliance on popular sentiment and support among those groups. The link, of course, with today's continuing attachment to gun rights is is significant here. Mobbing and rioting continued in many parts of the country as a form of law and order intervention to a degree more analogous with 18th than with 19th century England. While the horrifying practices of lynching implied vivid limits to state and legal standards of criminalisation well into the 20th century. Equally important, the creation of vigilance committees, which asserted to themselves the right of law enforcement in many areas of the country right into the 20th century, and in an entirely, uh, of course, random newspaper sampling still going on today on the, the border with Mexico, um, betoken a sort of lack of, of not merely of centralisation, but of standardisation of the rule of law in a way, which finds, I think, not a parallel in Northern Europe. The criminal justice systems of late 19th century America amounted to a sort of public-private hybrid, a hodgepodge of public yet politicised, professional yet not centralised, private and uncoordinated or hybrid organisations implying radical local variation in both institutional structure and outcome. Private bodies were being used to deliver governmental functions in a sort of echoing what happened in the political economy. And I think I'll sort of summarise here, but I think that the comparison actually between juries in the US and UK is really interesting here, because although you could say, well, the jury is is a counterexample there, because we've still got juries, um, what happened here was that quite certainly as part of the system of modernisation, it became very much more robustly understood that juries are only there to decide questions of fact. Whereas in the US, there's been a much more vigorous and long-lasting argument about the the issue of so-called jury nullification, whether it is part of the public role of the jury to invalidate unjust laws. And I think that betokens a very, very different conception of what the role of the lay voice in the criminal trial is. I think it's difficult to see how this sort of fragmented and significantly privatised trajectory of the US political economy in the decades of industrialisation would have conduced to this similarly decentralised and public-private structure of criminal justice. But a further interesting question arises, I think, about the political mentalities which these associated institutional structures both reflected and, and reinforced. As many historians have noted, American republicanism was always shaped by a strong attachment to freedom and a suspicion of centralised power, which has as its correlate a strong attachment to popular sovereignty and to the development of highly responsive institutions. 
In this context, um, Randolph, Randolph Roth's really magisterial study of patterns of homicide is quite instructive, I think. Over the whole sweep of American history, Roth finds that the level of homicide is positively related to periods of high social conflict and to low levels of trust in government and faith in strong national identity. These striking correlations raise important questions about the extent to which American polity and society has been able to achieve sort of internalisation of norms and mechanisms of social control on the same sort of level as other countries, uh, particularly countries with coordinated systems. And this really sort of echoes a point that David Garland makes in his book on capital punishment. This in turn invites the thought that there's a correlation not just between not just two, but three features of the US social landscape, the institutional structure of the political economy and of criminal justice, informal institutions of social control, and social mentalities in relation to state, and in particular federal <coughs> state power. How am I doing for time? We'll go another 15 minutes. Okay. So um, I, I, there's one more quick point I make, we make in that section, which is that you know, there's a lot of scholarship that argues, and I'm thinking of people like Heather Schoenfeld or Marie Gottschalk, that really uh, the key thing that structured the American criminal justice system the way it is today was the accretion of federal power during the Roosevelt uh, era. Uh, which produced a certain kind of increased capacity, which was then used to produce, uh, to effect mass imprisonment. And we don't disagree with that, but we don't think it addresses the question of why that happened. And so we think there's still a, a, a reason to go, uh, go back into history. Okay, let me come then to the last section of the paper, which has to do with uh, the upshot of this history for uh, racial disproportion in criminal justice today. So how have, the, how have, can, have these associated historical trajectories affected uh, the, the gross racial disproportionality in patterns of crime, criminal victimisation and punishment uh, today? Now, obviously, race and racism have long occupied a central place in the explanations of distinctive American patterns of crime and especially punishment, as indeed of social organisation more, more generally. And recently, as a result of Michelle Alexander's very striking argument, uh, race has really been absolutely the heart of debates about American criminal justice and the explanation of the prison build-up, with her very sort of striking, nice, clear uh, uh, argument that the uh, Jim Crow, that, that in effect mass imprisonment is, the, as she puts it in the title of her book, the new Jim Crow. Uh, so it's a system geared to perpetuating structural exclusion, and Heather Schoenfeld makes it an analogous argument in her recent book. Um, but as uh, James Foreman argued in his book, and I think very persuasively, uh, an explanation founded wholly in racial exclusion encounters some quite significant difficulties, not least in explaining the class aspects of racial patterns of, of punishment, with mass imprisonment, unlike Jim Crow, leaving a substantial black middle class pretty much untouched, and while having a, a significant impact on poor white, whites and Hispanics. Um, 
it also, I think, the, the full Jim Crow argument has some difficulty in explaining black political support for tough crime policies, as witnessed by policy choices in black majority jurisdictions such as Washington, D.C., um, as well as in explaining the role of violent crime in which uh, black Americans are disproportionately both victims and offenders in moving crime up the political agenda from the 1960s, as argued, I think, very effectively in Lisa Miller's work. So we argue that we need a, bit, a more of a pluralistic uh, interpretation here, albeit one at which uh, the history and politics of race is central and acknowledged to have large and continuing effects. Um, the stark facts of racial inequality in the US, as graphically charted by many, many scholars, um, are clearly direct and indirect consequences of Southern racism in and before the 19th century and the continuing echoes of slavery, the Jim Crow regime which replaced it, and a host of institutional arrangements, uh, particularly in relation to residential segregation. And of course, the, the continuing existence of racism, which persists not, of course, just in the US, but also in other countries, including this country, um, where it also has very consequential implications for criminal justice outcomes, have been thrown in the US into ever greater relief by Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, uh, by you know, other features of the Trump era. Um, but, of course, these things uh, long predate the era of mass incarceration. And I think the interesting question for this paper is what, you know, what precisely, how is that history resonating? Um, and I think w our argument about the, the impact of this local autonomy, really, uh, in, in its impact on race disproportionality today, really uh, operates primarily via the argument about how local democracy has produced segregation, particularly in the big industrial cities of the Northeast and Midwest, um, uh, uh, along with a very, very entrenched educational disadvantage, which is extremely difficult to escape because, of course, education is highly local. So we argue that the centrifugal dynamics set up by local autonomy have driven democratic graphic divisions within as well as between racial groups and they've given local black political leaders disincentives to combat segregation because their power base tends to, to be based in the highly segregated areas because of the logic of elections. So our, our sort of underlying argument is that once those sorts of divisions get mapped onto space the possibilities of reversal, notably through education, steadily diminish. And uh, these local institutional arrangements have often, through zoning, which is a really uh, very distinctive feature of American local power, fostered this toxic spatial concentration of disadvantage. Um, uh, and very, very brilliantly analysed, I think, in a, in a very recent book by Jessica Trunstein. But, of course, that spatial concentration of disadvantage predated the great migration uh, of the early 20th century, the northward migration. Um, and you'll notice, by the way, just to alert you to it, that, that the, uh, on these, this, this is work, uh, this is the second page, I believe, the first line of that table. This is work by geographers 
showing you can see that, that uh, residential segregation is really, really, really very high in the US. Um, so our argument is that this long-term structural difference helps to explain the fact that uh, although you have forms of quite toxic racism in a whole number of countries, uh, they have not seen quite the same scale of either uh, build-up of penality or uh, explosion of violent crime uh, in the, in the pe- latest period of technological disruption, technology regime change. And really the core argument is that um, in America's radically decentralised system, it hasn't proved possible to frame and find consistent support for political strategies to combat uh, segregation And at various points, notably in the 1930s, uh, racially motivated racist federal policies, we have to say, such as discriminatory rules about mortgage eligibility, made things significantly worse. Hence, racial disadvantage has continued to accumulate and to radiate out from the criminal justice system, producing highly inegalitarian social effects. The segregation-promoting dynamic of local politics has consolidated the problem of black and now also Hispanic disadvantage. So while American localism can't be argued to have been motivated directly by racism, it was shaped, in a sense, by racism because of its relationship to industrialization and the two-region solution. So the long history of racism in the US was a key indirect driver of localism itself, which today consolidates racial disadvantage. Because the persistence of segregation and racial disadvantage in the North is indeed a consequence of the American path to industrialization, which simply left black Americans to their fate in the South. Um, I've got more detail in that section, but I think I'm just going to uh, race to the conclusion because I I suspect, yeah, five minutes. Um, So here's the, really just to sum up. Um, The upshot of all this is that the racial justice to which the civil rights movement aspired and still aspires remains, alas, distant as social outcomes in education, crime, punishment and housing all too clearly attest. Um, Our argument in this paper has been that the decentralisation and fragmentation of power in the American political system and the political sway which this gives to parochial self-interest is one important reason why that's the case and that this decentralisation has long historical and institutional roots which depend as much on political economy as on the distinctive features of the US Constitution. In conclusion, it's perhaps worth pondering a counterfactual. Imagine, if you will, a a mid-19th century equivalent to President Trump, who, instead of prosecuting a civil war, decided that the solution was to build a wall between North and South so as to foreclose northward migration. While, of course, negotiating a trade deal featuring extensive tariffs. Now, one way of thinking about the upshot of our argument is that if it's roughly right, 
then the institutional structure of the northern political economy and criminal justice system would have developed in quite similar ways to those they followed in America's actual history. And inequalities in crime, punishment and broader social indices like housing and education would nonetheless have eventuated even without that northern, mainly black, migration. And I think here, the fate recently of Hispanics, Hispanic Americans and uh, migrants, uh, migrants with unequal access to forms of education and organisation needed to assimilate, and as King's work has really shown, I think, that uh, integration in America, probably elsewhere, has always, in effect, meant assimilation. Uh, so I think that the, the recent fate of Hispanics is, is actually quite suggestive here. For broadly political economic reasons, the American project of nation-state building, even of pacification, has remained, and I think now will remain, by the standards of other advanced economies with democratic political systems incomplete. As Roth puts it, as compared with its closest comparators, the ironically named United States has suffered a failure to coalesce as a nation. America's distinctive patterns of inequality, and of racial inequality in particular, are a tragic effect of America's distinctive and decentralised paths to modernity. Thank you. Thank you.